Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. As our kids are leaving, there's a lot of them too. Oh, yeah. After church, we're having a children's picnic. Make sure I say that. So I said it. After church, there's a children's picnic over at Pioneer Park. So all kids, fifth grade and below, can go over there and have some, some food, too. Has anybody ever heard of the Sea Wise Giant? Anyone? Heard of the Sea Wise Giant? This ship sailing vessel was built in 1979. It is considered the largest boat ever built. It's just slightly shorter in length than the height of the Sears Tower in Chicago. Huge. It's 1,504 feet long. It's so big, it's so massive, it cannot navigate through the English Channel, it cannot navigate through the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal. It is a huge, long boat. In addition to being the longest boat, it is the heaviest thing ever recorded with a deadweight tonnage of over 657,000 tons. That is an unbelievable piece of machinery, a ship that big. The largest cruise ship is still in the final stages of being built and will hopefully have its maiden voyage in the next couple of months. It's by Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. It's called the Allure of the Seas. It will be 1,181 feet long. It will have a tonnage of 225,000 tons and will carry around 5,600 people. That's unbelievable to me. A third the population of Sterling can fit on a boat. I don't know if I'd want to be around that many people out to sea, but that's a huge sailing vessel. Do you guys remember those shows from the 80s? Those cheesy TV shows? Ripley's Believe It or Not. That's incredible. Those cheesy shows where they had weird people doing weird things to try to get you to believe the unbelievable. And, and somehow as Americans, we are, we are enamored by things that we want to believe the unbelievable. We're, we're drawn to things that are just unbelievable. Whether it's Ripley's Believe It or Not, whether it's That's Incredible, or like me, who's a big Superman fan that watches Smallville religiously, a lot of us like the idea of a superhero that can fly, that can do the unbelievable. If you look at the top-selling movies from the past 10 years, almost all of them have to do with superheroes, right? You've got X-Men, you've got Superman, you've got Spider-Man, you've got Iron Man, any other type of man out there that's got some powers. We are enamored with things that are unbelievable. We want to believe the unbelievable. But as amazing as this huge boat is, and amazing as Superman is that can stop bullets and, and fly, there was another man that believed the unbelievable. And it still rings true today. His name was Noah. Now why would I say Noah believes the unbelievable? Well, he built an ark in a time where there was no rain. 
There was no flood. He was miles from an ocean. He'd never seen a boat before in his life. And God said, build this huge thing. It was unbelievable for Noah to believe the word of the Lord. Why in the world would he do this? Why would Noah devote 120 years to building something that unbelievable? Why did he have such radical faith in obedience to the living God? And so we are journeying through Hebrews chapter 11, where we're seeing what it means to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? One of the things we'll see today is that living by faith means that we believe the unbelievable. And it may not be what you think. At first glance, the unbelievable may be so familiar to us that sometimes we just gloss over it and it doesn't, it doesn't seem amazing to us anymore. But we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Noah. Noah. So let's read Hebrews chapter 11, one verse, verse 7 as we continue looking at these Old Testament characters and how they lived by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What I want us to do this morning is to see three specific things about the life of Noah. Three overarching specific things about the life of Noah that I believe will help us to understand what it means to live by faith. And they all center around this whole idea of believing the unbelievable. Believing the unbelievable. So how does this unfold for us? What's the first thing that we see about Noah's faith? First of all, first issue. Noah's faith was marked by a conviction in future unseen events. Future unseen events. Notice what it says in verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Now, we, we say that that's easy, Sean. We know what those events are. It's the flood, right? And we'd all nod our heads and say, yes, it's the flood. But... If we press a little further into the text, we realize that those events not yet unseen explain why the flood had to come in the first place. Remember, we have the privilege of reading the entire Bible. Noah did not have the Bible at this time. Noah had no idea what rain was, what a flood was, what, what all these things were. And so when God warned him of an unseen future event, we'd say, yes, it's the flood. But what about the flood? The flood shows us two things, two unbelievable things. Number one, that God would wipe out planet Earth. And number two, that God would save one family. Both of those things are unbelievable. So what we need to do is we need to go back to Genesis, as we've been doing every week. So keep a, keep a finger in Hebrews 11, go back to Genesis chapter 6, and we will realize just how wicked the earth was at that time. Remember last week, we looked at Enoch, who was a preacher of righteousness to a wicked generation. Noah is the same thing. So turn in your Bibles to, Hebrews, I mean, to Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Genesis 6 five through seven. And we will see 
the state of the world in which Noah lived. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, verse 5 is a scary verse. Every inclination of man's heart was evil continuously. It had to be pretty bad. It's unbelievable. In a period of a thousand years, okay, from, from, from Adam to Noah, about a thousand years, the world had gotten so corrupt, so wicked, so evil, that God said, I am sorry I created this thing. I'm going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth because of its wickedness. I think the wickedness was, was more than we could fathom. Now, we think we live in a wicked culture, don't we? We think there's wickedness all around us. It had to have been really bad back then for God to have said, I'm going to wipe everybody out. And at this point, God had truly not ever brought judgment upon the earth. Think about it. He never poured out his judgment. Even with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, you would surely die. What did he do? He kicked them out of the garden, but he provided in his grace garments from an animal for them to wear. God showed grace to Adam and Eve. Cain. We looked at Cain a few weeks ago. Even when Cain sinned, God did not execute judgment on Cain, but put a mark on his forehead and and basically sent him as a wanderer. So God had never at this point actually poured out judgment upon his creation. And so nobody had a clue that God would actually bring judgment. This was a foreign concept to this culture, that God would actually bring judgment upon wickedness. And the same thing rings true for us today. Do we truly believe, do we truly believe the unbelievable that God does judge wickedness? Do do we believe it? Do we really believe? When, When pressed, I know we don't like to think about it, but when pressed, do we truly believe that God will punish those who never trusted in his son in eternal conscious torment in hell? Do we truly believe that? Because if we truly believe that God does punish the wicked in hell, it should motivate us to get urgent, to get serious about sharing the gospel with every person that we come in contact with so they can escape the judgment to come. That's why we share the gospel. We do it out of love for those that are going to one day face God's judgment. And so Noah lived in a culture where most people didn't even think about God. They didn't think about God, they didn't care about God, and they sure weren't thinking God was going to judge them. God would never bring judgment. But God warns Noah. God brings a warning to Noah and says, there's going to be impending judgment upon the earth, Noah. It's going to come in a flood. The flood is going to blot out all of humanity, but I'm going to save you and your family. That is an unbelievable thing for Noah to even consider because number one, his family would be saved, and number two, the entire world would be wiped out. So number one we see that the the flood deals with God's judgment. But number two, the flood also is a picture of God's salvation. The salvation of a family. Look at Genesis 6-8. We need to spend some time here because there's a lot of misinterpretations about this. And by the way, let me just stop just for a moment. 
sometimes we, we, we have these sentimental pictures of Noah's Ark, right? We want to paint a picture of a little giraffes and animals on children's walls and children's rooms, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not a pretty little story. It's a story of God wiping out all the earth. I think sometimes we've sentimentalized Noah's Ark to have, oh, there's little animals in the boat. No, the reason the animals were in the boat was because God decided to destroy everyone because of their wickedness. But he decides to bring salvation to one family. Look at, look at Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We need to treat this very carefully because I believe this has been misinterpreted for so many years. And if you, if you get this wrong, it's going to mess up how you view salvation. Did Noah find favor in God's eyes because he was such a good guy? Was Noah any better than everybody else on the earth? Was Noah such a good man that God said, I'm going I'm to pick Noah because Noah was so righteous. Noah was so good. No, we have to go back to the original wording of what that word found favor means. That word in the Hebrew means God showed grace to Noah. God showed him sovereign grace. Noah was no different than every other human being that lived on planet Earth. Noah and his family deserved to be wiped out just like everybody else. So it wasn't because Noah was somehow better. It wasn't because Noah was somehow more righteous that God said, I'm choosing Noah. No, God came to Noah and said, everybody's wicked, but I'm going to show sovereign grace to you, Noah. I'm going I'm to show you grace. Noah deserved to die just like everybody else. To me, this is unbelievable. Let's just stop and think about salvation by grace for a moment. Do, do you truly believe the unbelievable that God actually saves sinners? Has the gospel of God's grace become so familiar with you that it just ceases to amaze you anymore? I mean, we sang amazing grace this morning. Is grace even amazing to us anymore? Or has this become so, so familiar with us that, that somehow we just think, well, yeah, God's grace is, is a good thing because, you know, I'm glad he saved me because really if I'm such a good person and I really deserve salvation and, and, and grace ceases to amaze us. When you stop and think about it, grace is unbelievable that God would show grace to people that do not deserve his love. Have you ever wondered why God saved you? Have you stopped and just said, why in the world did God save me? I should be annihilated off of planet earth, and God in his grace has chosen to save me. And Noah is a man who's warned about God's judgment, and I want to show you that this is salvation by grace so that there's no confusion. God shows grace to Noah. There was nothing in Noah that moved God to show him grace. Now, let's look at verse 9, because if we get verse 8 before verse 9, it makes sense, but a lot of times people go to verse 9, and they want to read it back into verse 8. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. So which came first, grace or righteousness? Grace. God saved Noah by grace, verse 8, and as a result of salvation by grace, he walked with the Lord. It's not the other way around. If it's the other way around, then we have salvation by works. Somehow, Noah was righteous enough to earn God's salvation. He was good enough that somehow God showed him grace. No, verse 8's there for a purpose, that Noah was saved by grace, and then he walked with the Lord. But a lot of times people teach that Noah was righteous, and as a result of his righteousness, God chose to save him. That's not the way... The text reads, God shows Noah grace first, and then as a result of salvation by grace, he walks with the Lord. And that's just the way it is with everyone that comes to grace. 
with Christ. Grace ceases to be grace if it's something that God is obligated to give. Have you ever thought about that? If God is obligated to show you grace, it's not grace. Because somehow you would earn it, you would deserve it, you would merit it. God simply decides to show grace because God decides to show you grace. And a lot of times we use the terminology, we are undeserving sinners, which is halfway true. We are undeserving sinners. But we're not neutral before God. It's not as if we don't deserve anything. Yeah, we don't deserve God's grace, but what do we deserve? We deserve destruction, hell, and condemnation. We are ill-deserving sinners. And for God to choose to save us is truly amazing because I think a lot of us come from this American cultural standpoint that somehow we are obligated to receive salvation. We live in a culture where it's all about me, my rights, everything centers around me. So it's obviously because I'm so good, because I'm so worth it, because I have such high morals, I'm such a good person, God is obligated to save me. And so we come from this whole vantage point in American culture that somehow God is obligated to save us because we are such good people and there is nothing in us that that causes God to save us except for his grace and when you stop to think about grace it truly becomes unbelievable that God would save you and God would save me it is a scandal a scandal that God the father would dare send his perfect sinless son to die in the place of rebel sinners to free them from condemnation to rise on the third day so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins and salvation if that ceases to be unbelievable to you I pray that God would renew that passion for the gospel in your hearts that you never get over the fact that God shows grace so the first thing that we see here is that Noah's faith was marked by conviction in future unseen events. These future unseen events were the flood, judgment, and salvation. Now, Noah lives up to verse 1. Go back to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So, Noah is living out this idea of not seeing the future. God's judgment, God's salvation. And it's the same for us. Do you realize that we live by faith in things not yet seen, the way Noah did? What's not yet seen to us? Two things, judgment and salvation. There will come a day when God will judge the earth. And there will come a day when God will save his people. The full consummation of our salvation will be on that final day. And we're not there yet, so we can't see it. The only way that we know it's true is because God has told it to us in his word. We believe God's word and what God says about those that don't trust in his son and what God says about those who do trust in his son, that there is a future day of both judgment and a future day of salvation. But secondly, the big thing, number one, Noah's faith was marked by a conviction in things not yet seen, the flood. But number two, big issue, Noah's faith was marked by reverent and practical obedience. Reverent and practical obedience. Remember the term by faith. By faith is an active word that means an energetic, passionate, obedient um, faith that actually does something. It doesn't just sit there. And notice what God said. God spoke to Noah. God said to Noah, build the ark. He gave him all the specifications of how he was to build the ark. God warned Noah of impending judgment. And and what if Noah would have said this? 
well, God, I know you spoke to me directly. I heard you. And I know you gave me explicit instructions to build this thing called an ark. I've never seen an ark, but you told me how to build it. You told me about this thing called rain that's going to come down, this thing called a flood, this wickedness. I know you've told it to me. You've been explicit, God. You've told me to go build an ark to save my family to escape the coming waters of a flood. Thank you, God, for giving me this information. And then Noah walks out and says, forget that, and doesn't do anything. Would that be faith? Faith responds to God's word with obedient and concrete action. If Noah were just to say nothing or do nothing, it would not be true faith. He responds in both reverent and practical obedience. First of all, reverent obedience. Notice what it says. Verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet, yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In reverent fear. Now, does this mean that Noah was afraid of God? That Noah was like back in a corner, cowering in terror, that somehow God was going to strike him with a lightning bolt? That's not what this means. It means that Noah had a healthy awe, a healthy appreciation, a healthy fear of God. He came with an attitude of worship. He knew. Noah knew that God had every right to drown him just like everybody else. And, he, and because God had come to him and showed him grace, Noah responds with a healthy fear toward the living God. This respect, it was the same type of respect and fear that, that Moses showed at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is at the burning bush, um, God says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. The, this text says he was afraid to look at God. Same word. It wasn't that he was scared God was going to smite him dead. It was that he was in the presence of holy, of a holy God. And so Noah doesn't obey with dreaded fear. He obeys with joyful obedience. And see, a lot of our obedience in living the Christian life is wrapped up in our attitude. It's a lot about attitude. You see, we can obey, but do it with a really bad attitude. We can obey begrudgingly. We can do what God tells us to do with a heart that says, I really don't want to do this, not full, full, full devotion. And secondly, he built the ark. That in and of itself is faith. He actually built the ark. He got the wood, he got the supplies, he began building the ark. This huge ship, he built it for 120 years. It wasn't glamorous. Building an ark was not glamorous. As a matter of fact, it was downright embarrassing. Why would you expose yourself to 120 years of humiliation, people walking by, laughing at you, saying, rain, never heard of it. Boat, what in the world are you building, Noah? 120 years he's at this building of an ark as people are coming by and making fun of him and ridiculing him and thinking this crazy man is talking about rain. It's not glamorous. Sometimes obeying God is not glamorous. Sometimes we just obey because God tells us to obey. And we may experience ridicule. We may experience hard times. We may experience uh, discomfort. It may not be comfortable, but we obey because God tells us to obey regardless of what the outcome is. Sometimes I think we have this fantasized view of Christianity that, that living for Jesus is always going to be glamorous. Not so. Sometimes just the practical day-to-day -day obedience isn't glamorous, but it's what God calls us to do, even if it doesn't make sense when God calls us to obey. Genesis 6.22 says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I mean, this takes... This takes authentic faith, doesn't it? 
I mean, I've stopped and started to think about Noah. You've never seen rain before in your life. To actually build an ark for 120 years, knowing that one day God's going to open the heavens and rain's going to fall and there's going to be a flood. So number one, Noah lived by a confident assurance in things not yet seen. Number two, he had a reverent and practical obedience. But number three, Noah's faith was marked by both a consistent message and a consistent lifestyle. His message and his lifestyle matched. Now, it says here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the, the last sentence there, by this, meaning the construction of the ark, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Building an ark was a visual object lesson for 120 years that God's judgment was going to come. He preached a message for 120 years. Now, we don't know exactly what he preached. We're not given a lot of details. Now, could he have stood up on the ark and, and given these fiery sermons from the top of the ark, yelling at people as they're coming by? We don't know. Did he take a break from building the ark and go around the countryside and start preaching to people? Or was it as simple as, I'm swinging a hammer, somebody comes by and says, what in the world are you doing? And he stops and just tells them. We really don't know. All we know is that Noah was a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that. It says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That word herald just means a preacher, an announcer. Noah was a preacher. Now, it's amazing to me. Here's the amazing implication of Noah. How long did he preach? 120 years. As wicked as that culture was, God gave them 120 years to do what? Repent. To hear the warning. And none of them repented. None of them repented. And when God gives you time to repent and you don't respond, there comes a point where God says enough's enough. As a matter of fact, Romans 2.4 says this. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So Noah preaches this message for 120 years. Judgment is coming. You better get right with God. There's going to be a flood. Repent, repent. 120 years. But not only did he preach a message, but his lifestyle backed it up. It says that he was an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Last week we said it's impossible to please God without faith. Now think about this for a moment. It would have been very easy for Noah to give up. I mean, think about it. You're building an ark. You can maybe handle, what, two or three years of, of, of people making fun of you? Maybe five years? Maybe ten years? 120 years? Most guys would have given up. Why deal with the humiliation? Why deal with the, with, with the scorn, the ridicule? Why deal with all the problems of 120 years of building an ark? It could have been very easy for Noah just to say, I've never seen rain, God. Are you sure there's a thing called rain coming? Are you sure there's a flood? Are you sure you're really going to wipe out the earth? Are you sure, God? Did I get the directions right, God? For 120 years, swinging the hammer, this is just stupid, God. But it, he, he did it for 120 years. He pleased God. It was backed up with concrete action. True faith always responds with action. Not just lip service, but action. An air of righteousness. An heir of righteousness. This is the righteousness that comes. The way the writer of Hebrews uses this is, is the righteousness that comes 
through justification by faith alone, a righteousness that is imputed to us, a righteousness that comes outside of us through Jesus Christ. The moment that we trust Jesus for salvation, a great exchange happens. When we trust Christ for salvation, his righteousness is imputed or reckoned or credited to us. Our sin is credited to him. And so this righteousness from outside ourselves, from Christ, comes upon us, and God the Father can look upon us as not guilty, as innocent, as accepted by God. As a matter of fact, Romans tells us in Romans 3, 21 through 24, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what we see here is that Noah believed God and his promises, and because Noah believed, God credited faith to him as righteousness. God imputed that righteousness to Noah where he stood accepted by God because of what God had done for him. It wasn't something that he produced in and of himself. And it's the same thing with us. We don't bring anything to the table with God. We don't go to God and say, God, here's my righteousness. God, here's my good stuff. God, I'm bringing you all the good things I've done. And so because of all the good things I've done, God, you're obligated to save me. God, here's my good stuff. No, Isaiah said, that's filthy rags. We don't bring anything to the table except for our sin. And God in his grace and his mercy says, I'm going to save you because you're unrighteous, because you're a sinner deserving death. I'm going to show you grace as a free gift, and I'm going to declare you righteous because of my son Jesus and his blood and his cross for you. I'm going to declare you innocent. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happens to every person that believes in Jesus Christ. Our sins are taken away, Christ's righteousness is given to us, and instantaneously we are accepted forever by God the Father. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Three things we see about Noah. But I want to leave you with a warning. What does it say? God warned Noah. God warned Noah. And that same warning rings true today. As a matter of fact, the warning comes from the very lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 24, Jesus is discussing the end of the age. Jesus is discussing his second coming. Jesus is discussing what's going to happen at his return. And there's a warning that Jesus gives. And so Matthew 24, 37 through 39 is the warning. As were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus compares the second coming with Noah's ark. He says, everybody kind of lived life doing what they did. And then it was too late. The flood came and swept them away. So will be my coming. My coming will be unexpected. My coming will be when you least expect it. And, and, and instead of coming and being swept in, in, in flood waters, it's going to be a whole lot worse than a flood. It's not going to be a worldwide flood when Jesus comes back. Far worse. It's going to be eternity in a place called hell where sinners will face the lake of fire. So Jesus gives a warning. What's the warning? 
The warning is the same in Noah's day as it is in our day. Judgment is coming. There is a day where God will bring judgment upon the earth. As it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There is a day coming where God is going to bring judgment upon the unrighteous. So you may be asking, how? How do I escape this judgment? How do I escape the judgment to come? And let me just tell you what you need to do. You need to do exactly what Noah did. You need to get in the ark. What do you mean, Sean, I need to get in the ark? I can't go out and build myself an ark. What do you mean, get in the ark? Can I just tell you, symbolically, Jesus himself is the ark? He is the ark. Think about this for a moment. As in the days of Noah, there was only one way to escape the flood, a boat. There was only one door into the ark. There was only one way of salvation, the ark. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the ark that will not only save you from floodwaters, but will save you from the coming destruction that comes when God pours out his judgment on all the unrighteous in hell. That's unbelievable. Enter into Jesus. Enter the ark. Enter into him who is the ark himself so that when that flood comes, you will be saved just like Noah's family was saved. Because you, so you can't save yourself. You can't go out and build an ark. You can't do enough religious things to somehow construct for yourself your own salvation. You've got to, by grace, just enter in. That's what you do with Christ. You enter into a relationship with him. You walk to him. You go through the door of Christ. You enter the ark. And there's a poignant illustration. There's a really poignant illustration at the, in the Noah's Ark story. It's from Genesis 7, 15 through 16. A great poignant image. They all went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Did you catch that? Who closed the door of the ark? God. God shut the door. Now think about this. When you enter into Jesus, God holds you in his grip. God holds you in his grasp. God safely puts you into Jesus. You can never be lost. You can never be plucked out of his hand. God safely puts a stamp of approval on your life and says, because you've entered in Jesus, the deal is sealed. I've shut the door. You're in. You're safe. You are now my child. Who closed the ark? God did. And God will never leave or forsake those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. Noah believed the unbelievable. Are you today believing the unbelievable? Number one, that judgment is coming, but number two, that God can save you. Do you realize that God can save you? Let me just issue a plea this morning. I, I, I issue this every week. If you are here today and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Enter into Christ. Enter into the ark. Judgment is coming. I don't mean to scare anybody. 
I'm not here to, to be hellfire and brimstone, but I'm just telling you the reality. Jesus said, there will come a day of judgment. All those that trust in Christ will be saved. All those that are outside Christ will not. There's no middle ground in the Bible. You're not either half in or half out. You're either all in Christ or you're not in Christ. And so today, enter into Jesus. Believe the unbelievable that God can save you. Let's pray.